Hi, I am Mohan Surf. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business. I teach at the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago, and I study the brain and try to help companies implement my knowledge of the brain in their businesses. Today, we're going to talk about dreams, about consciousness, about deja vu, AI, how neuroscience can help your business, about death, about brain mapping, science fiction, and about meaning. Here's something I've always been curious about, the intersection of neuroscience, technology, particularly as those two things come together and they pertain to the advancement of not only humans, but humanity, different thing. In other words, do these things pull us together or pull us further apart from our own deep human connection? Can there be ways for us to come together? Well, that's the opening to the rabbit hole we're about to enter into in this delicious series of episodes on Curiosity Bites. So grab your beverage, find a corner, because we're going deep. <laughs> I'm your host, Dov Barron. And to find out more about me, how you can hire me as an executive advisor, strategist, or speaker for your organization, go to DovBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. And we are grateful because this episode is brought to you in part by MagCast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market and got to do it all at once? This is your way to go from being invisible to getting a meeting with anyone. To find out more, you can simply go to magcast.co. That's mag, M-A-G, cast, C-A-S-T, dot co, where first-time publishers build thriving magazine businesses. And remember that you can join in this conversation and talk about what everything we're discussing here on Curiosity Bites inside of our Facebook group. All right, let's chomp it down and dive right into this episode. What does neural mapping, bank robbery, business efficiency, hacking, aliens, dream states, TV shows like Limitless, and the desire for meaning all have in common? Confused? Good. Well, the answer is that it is our guest on these delicious episodes. Moran Surf is a professor of neuroscience and business. He is cited as in the top 40 business professors under 40. He is, uh, he's researched on how to use neuroscience in business to help companies apply uh, uh, the recent advances in understanding the brain and to improve their performance. He consults to Hollywood for the science of films and TV shows like Limitless and Mr. Robot. He was a former hacker for the Israeli intelligence who, among other things, hired him to rob banks. Yes, he's a former uh, he's the founder of Think Alike and B-Cube, and he's the host and curator of PopTech and one of the top five leading conferences. In, it's one of the top five leading conferences in the world. And apparently, he's now an agony ant um, <laughs> where you can write to him about advice columns, but I'm sure he'll tell you more about that later. So, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the master of scientific and neurological cosmogonics. Professor Lawrence Arthur. What? Let me go Thank you. How are you, mate? Good to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. 
because there is all kinds of good places where you can go. So always like to start with what do you I mean, I know that, you know, from our previous conversation that you, like me, are a person who just loves to explore all kinds of different areas. But what do you presently find yourself most curious about? Uh, academically, I have this uh, project that I'm really interested in that I work on for the last couple of weeks that asks the question, can we uh, influence your dreams? So you go to sleep, you get to your dream state, and we zap your brain while you're dreaming and basically give you conscious awareness so you can control your dreams. You can bring your grandma and she joins you in your dream, or you can start flying, or you can uh, go on a date with uh, George Clooney, anything you want. George Clooney is not my type, but thanks for the offer. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's very cool. That's very cool. That's, that's, that's interesting. So what about, do you look at things like, um, this is one of the things I've been very, really interested in right now is um, looking at VR, virtual reality, um, um, in the context of creating a three-dimensional dream state uh you've been into that so it's funny you say that because if you dig deep enough in the internet not easy but you can find it you will find a quote of me from like 2016 or something like this saying vr is going to be out when our research is going to come to fruition because my argument back then i don't stand by it anymore but i still will uh, explain it uh, was that vr is a limited version of a dream Right in VR, you put the goggles and then you see a movie or you play a game when you're the kind of protagonist and everything is great. But if dinosaurs come to get you and you get scared, you just do this and it's over. And you mm. do that all the time. So if you get scared, you can always get out of the experience and you're back in real world. Whereas in dreams, it's not the case. No. You actually have the dinosaur come to you and it filters all of your emotions and all of your kind of uh, fear moments because you think it's reality. So for the short time, where dreams are happening, they're not virtual reality, they are reality. And in that sense, they're better than anything else. And once we learn to control them, and we can actually bring the dinosaurs to your dream and have you get the experience you want, you will actually feel that it's real life. And that I think is superior to virtual reality. Yeah, however, um, talking about the uh, emotional content of it, when we we test out a VR uh, set, a good one, and you put it on somebody who is in a room, who knows they're in a room, who knows they're surrounded by other people and everything's fine. And the VR set says, you're now walking on a plank over a Canyon. Um, The uh, neurological results (laughs) and the emotional results are that same chemical cascade as if it was very real. They wobble like it's real that even though consciously they are aware I'm in a room with goggles on, they feel all of those emotions. Yeah, absolutely. The heart rate goes uh, high, respiration, skin conductivity, pupils get wider. Everything that you would expect from a fear happens then. Not only that, we now have research in neuroscience that shows that actually your brain learns to not be scared of heights. So you can take a person who's afraid of heights, put them in VR, have them walk on the plank, and they actually change their brain circuitry such that tomorrow they would be in the real world not afraid of heights. So it, it definitely works. I yeah, still think that there's some kind of limit, but difference, but but to the, to the extent that if we want to make a person feel something, VR is the ultimate experience. That's why I'm saying I, I take back what I said in, in 2018. I still think it's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I um, I had a... Um, actually, it, it just came out today, which was um, 
as in as we record this and um it's uh, Jeremy Lent, I don't know if you know who he is, mm-hmm. but we were talking about the, the patterns of meaning. And one of the things we talked about there was something that, you know, years and years and years ago, I'd sit around with my friends and we'd talk about how, you know, certain things would never be augmented. They'd never be, you know. And so we talked about things like, you know, your hairdresser will always be your hairdresser. It won't be a machine. Well, it probably will. <laughs> um, but one of the things that seemed sort of untouchable was therapists. Like there's never going to be a therapist you know, who's replaced um, it, with artificial intelligence. And now I'm going, hold on a second. You put a VR set on and you deal with an issue and you confront your granny who was a wicked old witch and, t- and tortured you and you get to speak it out. There is a change. If you have fear of heights and you're walking out on the plank and you learn to stand on the plank, you, there is a neurological, the neural pathways change, uh, the neurons that fired together no, no longer fire together, so no longer wire together. So that all those things, I mean, I find that really fascinating. The potential okay. of a VR or augmented therapy is pretty cool. With, with the extent to exposure therapy, where you're kind of afraid of something and they put it in front of you, or cognitive behavioral therapy where you kind of gradually increase the exposure from a very, you know, you're afraid of elevators and you gradually kind of just touch one, go inside one, drive in one and so on. In that sense, I think uh, it it could be fantastic. There's another direction where AI is taking a big kind of leap now, which is pure psychodynamic therapy, which is like that's something we didn't see coming. Like we, we, okay, we kind of said, okay, it's going to be great if I can, if you're afraid of spiders, then I can create an environment where you have spiders in front of you. That's definitely VR's sphere. What surprises people more and more is that AI could be, be a talk therapy. Like you can go to a person and talk to them, or you can sit in front of a computer and chat with a computer. And on the other side, there's no human, there's a machine, and it still does a pretty good job in corresponding with people to the extent that they say, you know what, I felt at the end of the hour that I was understood. That's kind of even more interesting, I think. Yeah, that for me is is really fascinating because now we come down to um, the artificial intelligence, the AI of empathy. Mm-hmm. Because in order to feel understood, I have to feel that the person on the other side or the system on the other side had empathy for my situation in order for me to say i feel like they got me so that for me is is a very interesting um you know and i always wonder if things are on that if they're on a tipping point meaning you know um if, if they're if they're on that spectrum you know how if the person receiving the therapy has done a lot of work and has been with a lot of therapists if they're going through that kind of work, would it work so well for them as it would work for somebody who's never done any therapy and doesn't know what the experience is or, you know, so, or maybe is not particularly emotionally evolved or, you know, so it's, it's an interesting spectrum for response. I mean, it's definitely, it's a conversation that happened uh, among therapists when the field was kind of shaping up the question of can can someone give advice to a person about, say, losing a child if they've never lost a child? Right. And the kind of conclusion that that it's definitely possible. Uh, I mean, not every therapist has to be bipolar to talk about bipolar disorder. So, so I think that that's the case right now. Although but many the of them time, might be. <laughs> at the same time, the, the, the interesting thing about AI is what, what seems to come up as the easiest thing that AI does 
is it just repeats when it comes to empathy it repeats your statement yeah. as a question and yeah. this is you know there's kind of program from the 80s called eliza that was the first case of that and it works beautifully like you say my feel my mom doesn't love me and all he does is it says why do you feel your mom doesn't love you and right. people even with that basic you know very simple language processing system still put their hearts and open up and, and, so, and in that sense i feel it speaks to the human psyche that all we need is to be heard and if someone basically echoes what we said to us we still feel that it made a change and it kind of opens us up so in that sense i think that we're very simple we're very simple that that's really interesting isn't it i mean because you're a neuroscientist and yet you you know and and we know about the complexities and and uh, of neuroscience and we certainly know the that we've definitely not really understood the brain anywhere near what it's capable we're capable of doing or what is possible and yet you say we're very simple T tell us what you mean by that i think that the analogy that i would come up with right now on the spot for the first time is uh, physics uh, when newton was looking at uh, you know balls moving and like uh, masses moving on and he created f equals ma the equation basically says the math is the proportional difference between the acceleration and force this is working at the same time now that we know a lot about molecular biology and about gravitational field and quantum forces and so on it's amazing that it works it's like there's so many things happening when you kind of have two bowling balls touch each other or you yes. know one hits the other but at the same time if you just kind of look at it from afar and you say okay this is the mass of one bowling ball this is the mass of another when they hit each other this is what's going to happen it works and you don't have to explain all the mechanistics uh, underlying things same as humans i think we if we try to dive into the brain and understand how our neuron codes who you are who i am our interaction and so on we're gonna totally miss out on everything but if you take a person and you say hey here's a white chocolate ice cream and a black chocolate ice cream which one do you want and we look at your past experience we say oh this guy's gonna want the dark chocolate one and that's it we can predict without knowing everything about you we just say oh this guy three times like chocolate he's gonna want chocolate tomorrow as well that's about it hmm you know there's a lot we can unpack there and we'll go there. We will, you know, our, our guests have this. One of the things I love about this show is what I talked to you about before our guests on this show, the people I invite to be on the show, they tend to be the kinds of folks who've had, uh, shall we say they've traveled a long and winding road, meaning they usually been off into other worlds of knowledge before they end up where they are talking to us about whatever it is. And I just like to give people some sort of context here because your road has been certainly long and winding and, and different. Uh, so, so just sort of, so everybody has a, a context, uh, tell us a little bit about your long and winding road. Um, I guess I, I can go chronologically, but that would be too long. So I'll give you kind of the, the, Points. Yeah, sure. That... I guess the, the, the informing events in my life is that uh, as a child, I was in Israel and I uh, was kind of like a child actor, uh, you know, on, on TV shows and so on. And I think this is totally past uh, and not part of my life in kind of how I behave. But I do think it informed a lot of my ability to communicate quickly messages. And I think as a scientist, mm. I realized that it's a skill. Like a lot of my mm. colleagues, the scientists, they, they're terrified before they go on stage and they feel confused when a question gets asked and so on. And I felt that this is kind of a surprise to me. And I realized that it's something I owe to my time as a child, kind of knowing that uh, there's like a two minutes 
from the action to cut that you have to kind of perform. So I think that that's kind of a big part of yeah. my childhood. I would say that the next kind of part of my life was when I was a hacker. That was kind of teen years. Computers kind of evolved in the 80s when I was a, a child. So I learned how to work with them and how they kind of, kind of interact with each other and so on. So when internet became a thing, I was kind of knowledgeable enough to offer some services in the world of security and hack into banks and stuff like that. And this was kind of an important part of my life led to me being recruited to the Israeli intelligence. And I guess that's where my skills were really, my skills were kind of you know, improved by kind of a team of military operators who <laughs> kind of focused Owned on the skills. <laughs> yeah. I guess then following that comes the come the uh, period of working. So I left the army. I went to parallel. Uh, I went to university to study physics and philosophy. That was kind of my undergrad and masters. And at the same time, I I was working in cybersecurity. So this was kind of my business experience. So everything uh, I I talk about when I talk about business, when people ask me for advice, comes from data from twenty years ago. So take that with a grain of salt. And I can give you a lot of stories of uh, failed uh, moments in my business career, including the time that I. Uh, was basically offered to be part of a mini Facebook. And I said, this would never work. Or uh, someone told me uh, that someone had the, the patent for uh, basically text texting on a phone. And I oh, said, yeah. who would want to type on a phone? That's never going to work. So there are many, many, in, on my record, I have many, <laughs> yeah. many moments where someone came to me with like a great idea. And I said, who would type on a phone would be like, a, you know, on my graveyard. Uh, uh, so that was my business uh, kind of experience. And then I went to academia and that's where I am for the last couple of years. And in academia, there are kind of two hats that I wear. I spent 15 years as a neuroscientist. This is since I came uh, to the world of academia in 2005. And recently I added or uh, kind of supplemented my neuroscience research by looking at how to apply what we know of the brain in the context of decision-making in business. So how can mm. we help companies make decisions correctly? That's fine. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of things that you've done. Um, how, let, let's let's start that. Let's start at the beginning. How did you end up as a uh, as a child actor? Because you were you you were born in France. Yeah, is that right? So you're born in so, France. You go to Israel when you're how old? About five, just before school started. So you're a little kid, right? So how do you end up as a? Because I imagine you're speaking. Did you as a little kid were you taught to speak Ivrit, Hebrew, and French? Yes, my, at home we spoke Hebrew mostly, so my Hebrew was much better, but I do remember coming to first grade, so kind of move to Israel, go to first grade, and in first grade, the teacher basically wrote the letter Aleph, that's the A yeah. in the Hebrew alphabet, on the uh, kind of blackboard, and said, now everyone copied in their notebook 100 times, so you kind of learn to do it, and day two, we learn B, C, and so right. on. So every day we copy hundred times and so on. And about a week or two in, my dad at home notices that I'm doing homework, but he realizes that I'm writing from left to right. So Hebrew mm. is from right to left, French yes. and most words are left to right. And yes. he would write something on the blackboard and we had to copy that. And I copied so everything looked perfect on my notebook, but no one noticed until my dad noticed that I'm actually copying it in the wrong direction. So I'm kind of reading Hebrew as if it's English. As if it's English. I'm still getting it. So that's when my dad realized that my mind is thinking in one direction, but actually the language I'm supposed to write is the other one and kind of fix that. So that's kind of that. In Israel, when I moved to Israel, my mom is a fashion designer and she is artistic and she kind of cares about the art world as, as an endeavor that's important to her. When I moved to Israel, they opened, there's only two private schools in Israel, basically, in Tel Aviv at least. Now there's a little bit of kind of in between. 
-hmm. But at the time, there were most of the school system is public, and there were two private schools in Israel. One of them was the that that year opening a art school, which is a school that had morning to afternoon regular school, but afternoon to late afternoon art school where you study ballet dancing and music and so on and my mom said that's the school my son's gonna go to focusing really? primarily on the art part and part of being in this art school was also that the art school was kind of providing actors for tv shows providing musicians for it became like the go-to place for yeah. kids kind of the disney channel uh, of israel <laughs> and uh, that's how i got to do those things how long were you doing the child acting since I was five years old to when I was 16. So, oh, you did it that long? Yeah, yeah. Wow. My life. So, I, I mean, so if I if I go to Israel and look for kids' movies, I'll find you in there somewhere. Occasionally. I mean, thank God there was no, you know, YouTube and uh, those things. <laughs> exactly. in the it was like there was only one channel in Israel and like, uh, uh, they were not great in like archiving stuff. So not a lot. Uh, but every now and then someone would uh, pop up uh, a video uh, and uh, would kind of flash it in front of me in the yeah. moments. I got, uh, I got a, a text from my son. Uh, last week or the week before with a little picture right and it's a still frame from a show from a movie and the movie is friday the 13th remember that shit movie friday the 13th part eight so there was a part eight and the the still frame is me because <laughs> i was in that movie wow that's like a claim of fame <laughs> it was like oh my god and i'm like oh that, that was me wow i'm hardly recognize me the entire next two hours should be just about that. How did you get there? What did it make you feel? <laughs> uh, like, how do you kind of reconcile who you are right now with a character in uh, exactly. Friday the Fucking Number Eight? Uh, that, that is uh, that is that is so funny. So you know what's funny to me is that uh, there, there, I, I studied at some point uh, all kinds of neurological disorders, uh, and one of the ones that I studied as a neuroscientist was uh, postapagnosia, which is basically people with the inability to see faces. They, they see that there is a face there, but all faces look the same to them. They can't remember the features. So if they see. see you and me, they, we all look the same to them. It's kind of like, if you look at a litter of cats, you see eight cats and they look the same to you. Like you can't say, oh, this is clearly John and this is clearly Melissa. Like they all look like the same cat kind of like, and you, and you can yeah. make an effort and say, oh, this one has a little bit pointy ears. So I'm gonna, that's how they live life. They kind of find something and they say, okay, this guy has a funny haircut. That's how I'm gonna remember him, and they look for funny haircuts in the room, but it's not coming to them automatically like, like we do. That's a disorder. All What's humans. Prosopagnosia. So agnosia means you don't see something, and proso is face. Right. So that's the disorder, and it turns out that there's a test online that anyone can take. It shows you faces, and it asks you to tell apart faces, and some of them are easier, some of them are getting harder and harder. All of us, on a scale of say zero to one hundred, fall in the eighties to ninety-five. Sure. Like all of us have some of it. Like at some point it becomes hard. And postapagnosia is defined by having like a score of 60, 40, and so on. They really are bad at that. And they have interesting stories because in the beginning of their life, no one believes them. They think that they're just racist. They say, oh my God, all white people look the same. I say, no, mom, they actually look the same to me. Like uh, uh, at some point, the parents kind of realize that it's actually like a disorder. Put that aside, there are some people, very few, who score 100 on that. So these guys are what we call super recognizers they're uniquely good in telling faces apart and if they seen your face once 10 years ago they would find it right away when uh, so these guys 
first of all, they're you know many times being employed by the FBI or the kind of parallel because they're really good in like in a, in a crowd of people. They said this guy was already, but they also report having a hard time watching movies because they recognize the extras. They say, oh, this guy, this extra in Terminator 2 was also the extra in Friday 13 number eight. Like they kind of say, oh, you remember this guy? And this guy in the crowd, like face number three was also on the bench uh, two scenes ago. It's the same extra. They really have a hard time because everything they see, they remember and they recognize right away. So maybe your son has this uh, unique talent to find his dad in every movie and everything you did. Like anything that you did in your past, your son's going to find out. Well, that's interesting. Um, so when you i wonder if that part of the brain that's recognizing those facial patterns i wonder if that works in other things so um you know as you know there are people who have an incredible ability to recognize patterns in things mm -hmm. um i recognize patterns of language and patterns of behavior. I'm very good at going, that's why when I work with these high level individuals, I'm like, you do realize that's this, right? And they're like, no. And I go, let me show you. And then they go, oh, I never thought about that. Why didn't I see that? Why would you see that? You, you wouldn't. The fish cannot describe water, hmm. right? But I, that's, my, that's my skill. But is it, do you think it's the same thing or do you think it's a different thing than recognizing faces? So I would say this, First of all, for faces, we're actually uh, built for that evolutionary. There's a part of our brain here in the back yep. left called FFA, fusiform face area. That's a part of our brain that nature gave us to detect faces. That's kind of made for that. And face, so faces are uniquely different. Like we, we're also good in detecting like objects and locations and landmarks and so on. But faces is something that we have as a built-in property. Now, when it comes to patterns, generally, the human brain is made to be pattern detecting machine. Yeah. People are not good at it. And in fact, right now we have some studies that try to see how can we tell by looking at your brain, my brain, your wife's brain, your son's brain and so on, how good you are. So the same way I told you there's a scale from zero to 100 to kind of face detection, there could be in the brain a scale for what you say you're fantastic at. And then there must be a way to tell apart and say, okay, Dove is amazing at that, and we should hire him to be our consultant, our therapist, our, our analyst, because that. And Moran is terrible. We should never ask him to tell us uh, tell us kind of how A relates to B. One thing that we're looking to right now, that's I'm kind of tell me if it's too boring, but I'll, I'll tell you the, the neuroscience of that, is uh, whether a sleep could be the moment where this skill improves, and, mm. and, and it's done in the following way. Normally in life, when some things are connected, they come together very uh, close in time. So if I like clap my hands and there's a sound, they happen simultaneously such that your brain can easily figure out that the movement of the hands beats the sound. And that's how right. we normally live our life. Some yes. things in life are not like that. Some things in life, like you do something on day one and two weeks later, the effect happens. That's where people fail. That's what you are good at. Like you come to a person and say, hey, what you did here is the same as what you did there, but you don't see it because they're far apart. Turns out that one of the moments when we sleep, uh, our dream state uh, happens to basically speed up time and slow down time, such that it mm -hmm. makes two events that are far apart look like they are close together or separate events that are close together, far apart to make our brain see things as if they kind of happen at the same time and allow us to do this better. So this is our brain's way of helping us do what you do naturally, which is kind of say, okay, 
things that happen two weeks apart, let's make a movie in which they happen right away, mm. like, you know, cut after one and immediately move to the other. And then maybe the human could see that they're connected. And that's kind of how our brain plays with time over dreams to allow us to maybe find patterns that are far apart and our brain is not good in kind of picking up. That That's really fascinating. The brain is, because um, so, there's, a, there's a, a very distinct part of the brain that is, that deals with time uh, and and our ability to distort time um in your research in your science it we it kind of automatically happens in dreams you know we're you know this but in 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 a cognitive state can that be trained so I think that I think that if you say that you, this is a skill of yours, that you really see, that's probably what happened to you. Like you were training for that. I mean, I mean, all you need to do is suppress the need for answers to be tied to cause and effect automatically. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's hard for humans because we are a kind of pattern making machines. Like, you know, you go play basketball three times with the same underwear. You say, okay, that's my lucky underwear. I won three <laughs> times. From yes. now on, I'm always gonna wear this underwear because that's the that's the reason I win, and and it's almost like inevitable for our brain to do that. Like we cross the street and we you know climb the next kind of uh, uh, side with our right foot, and then good things happen. And say okay, that's it. Right foot is the is the right one. We and even if we're totally not superstitious, which I, I am not, and I believe that many others uh, are also not, it's still happening to us. Like our brain sure. kind of picks up for that. Like it's it's just like very hard to not do it because this is what our brain did in the last hundred thousand years of evolution it tried to make meaning out of all kinds of random events so we always do that and we have to break it if we don't want to and some people have a hard time breaking it because it's so hard so superstition reframed there is actually pattern recognition yeah exactly right so i think i think superstition is our we just let, let the brain do it we don't stop it right the brain the brain will always come up with something and i think that ties to that is also the need for community that if I find something that works for me, so let's say, you know, I wore this underwear three times and won the game, there's a chance that tomorrow, I now I come up with a, with a, with a kind of theory. These underwear are the reason I'm winning basketball game because, they, and so then our brain does one more thing, which is it builds a story. And it says, that it's not really that the underwear makes me throw well, it's that the underwear gives me confidence. And the confidence, like we can come at a story and this story we can share with others. So then others who don't have my underwear, they can still say, oh, but I also feel confident. Like it quickly propagates. And then what started as like a random thing becomes real in the sense that we actually build a story around that. And then the other person actually might say, you know what, all I need is to be confident. So forget about the underwear. I'm just going to work on my confidence. And be before long, it becomes actually a true thing. So what started as like random thing becomes true if enough people gather around it and make it meaningful and, and useful. And that, in that sense, it's not a kind of conspiracy. It's true. If a lot of players in the team actually say we should work on our confidence because it's going to make us play better and they work mm. on their confidence and they play better, it doesn't matter that it started with like a underwear a, a kind of silliness. It actually ends up with them playing better. But it, it, that's really interesting. We're, we're going to end this part of the show with that because I think that's a really interesting piece which is the 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 stories we tell ourselves that become our reality I have a quote that says be careful of the stories you tell they become your reality and your reality becomes your story 
agree 100%. Right, so it's a loop, right? Be careful of the stories you tell, it becomes your reality, and your reality will become your story, which will again reinforce this nonsense. Um, and so you end up, you can end up in some very bad loops with that, but you can also end up in some very good loops. Uh, um, and, and I really want to sort of explore that idea of reality uh, reinforcement versus what is actually there in, uh, so outside of the narrative so we're going to come back uh, for part two and i hope you you will stay with us of course i'm here with my amazing guest uh professor moran surf uh <clears throat> i'll tell you more about him in the in the next part but this is an amazing conversation this guy is a neuroscientist he's an advisor to to hollywood he's a tedx talker i mean there's a lot of stuff here so we hope that you'll stay with us and come back as we explore the reinforcement of reality versus what is reality see you on part two stay curious my friends stay curious